those of you who are new, also I should tell you that we've been in a series of sermons on the family for a number of weeks, and we've called this series The Family Tree. Today I want to speak to and about an issue that a certain subset of people in the room today and listening online wrestle with. I want you to see if you can identify the subset of people that I'm talking about by these things that they might not ever say out loud, but they are absolutely thinking. Here's the first. I'm totally flexible as long as everything is exactly the way I want it. There's another one. I have CDO. It's like OCD, but the letters in alphabetical order like they're supposed to be. If at first you don't succeed, maybe you should have done it the way I told you to in the beginning. I'm not arguing. I'm explaining why I'm correct. And you make me want you to be a better person. Okay, how many of you guessed that I'm describing perfectionists? How many of you guessed that? I'm talking uh, to and about those of you who struggle with uh, perfectionism. You know who you are. Uh, you're the people who even, who if you see someone, even a, even a total stranger who missed, uh, let's say, a belt loop, you're going to stop them down in public and you're going to demand that they take their belt off and fix it. If a policeman gave you a ticket that you didn't think you deserved, uh, even if you were really angry about it, you'd never wad it up and throw it back at him. You would neatly fold it and hand it uh, back to him. Perfectionists have such high standards that no one can meet them, including themselves. Now, I feel the need to warn you right now that I'm going to tell a joke. I'm warning you because this might fall into the category of dad jokes. I've told so many dad jokes over the year, I can't even determine anymore if they are dad jokes or not. Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay. So a perfectionist uh, walked into a bar. The bar must have been too low. Dad joke? Okay. Well, all joking aside, and I sense there are questions about whether that could really be called a joke or not, I think most perfectionists would tell you that it's not fun uh, being a perfectionist. True perfectionism, not just being particular, not just a commitment to excellence, but true perfectionism, in fact, is an addiction. And people who are perfectionists are crippled by their perfectionism. And like many addictions, perfectionism is often initially triggered by childhood trauma and then becomes a lifelong way of coping with painful emotions. Many years ago, I had an elder in my church. This was a long time ago. Uh, and this man was a true uh, perfectionist. Let's call him Charles. That wasn't his real name. Charles' life motto, if he would have had one, was make everyone happy. That's tough to do on an individual level, but it's even harder to do in a large organization. But because Charles was an elder in our church, the church became an extension of himself and his need to make everyone happy. So Charles would call me with suggestions, in other words, demands, for things that I ought to do differently, that my staff ought to do differently, to make sure that we kept everyone happy all the time. He would tell me if I didn't make enough eye contact with a certain section of the worship center during my sermon and would want me to practice all week long moving my eyes around the room. If someone were to tell him that I didn't say hi to them on Sunday morning, he'd call me on, on Monday wanting me to set an appointment with that person to tell them that I really care about them. He once wanted me to tell one of our uh, professional musicians that uh, he strummed his guitar strings too hard. I had no intention of telling him that, but that's what he wanted me to tell him. Every conversation with Charles was full of shoulds and shouldn'ts, criticisms and corrections, and a new to-do list to add to my already 
busy life. Charles invited me to, to lunch one day, and even though I would uh, rather have had a root canal, I accepted. Uh, I don't remember what we were talking about that moment at lunch anymore. Maybe it was one of my kids' first day of school or something, but Charles began telling me the story of his first day of school. He told the story dispassionately, sort of like an old news story almost, despite the trauma that that day had really been for him. Charles told me that he hugged his father goodbye that morning before he walked the two blocks to his first day of school with his mother. At the end of the day, it was all he could do not to run outside to see his mother and, and tell her uh, all about his first day of school, but she was crying, and she cried the whole walk home. And when they got home, Charles burst into the front door, excited to tell his dad about his day, but he couldn't find him. He's left us, and he's never coming back, his mother sobbed. And in fact, Charles never saw his father again. That was his memory of his first day of school. Can you imagine the effect that would have had on a little boy? You know, first grade Charles didn't have the emotional wherewithal to process all of this, and no one helped him process it. So he did what most children do when a parent leaves. He blamed himself. He reasoned in his little first grade mind that if he'd been a better boy, dad wouldn't have left. And though he couldn't have verbalized it at the time, Charles determined from that day forward that he would never be a bad boy, that he would always be a good boy, that he would do everything right so that he would never disappoint anyone else and have them abandon him. And at 60 years old, at the time of our lunch, Charles didn't have the self-awareness still to realize that he was still trying to be a good boy. It was terribly, terribly sad. And what Charles couldn't see, maybe didn't want to see, was that his perfectionism distanced himself from everyone, including his wife and his children, his adult children. Charles would tell you that his perfectionism was just him being uh, meticulous, but it wasn't just him being meticulous. He was racked with the fear of being abandoned again. And everyone in his relational orbit, including his family, suffered under his pathological need to be perfect. Because the closer you were to Charles, the more imperative it became that you were a good boy or a good girl, too. To be close to Charles, you see, was to feel controlled and criticized. Some of you are addicted to perfectionism, and, and you know the struggle pathological need to be perfect, to check every box, to dot every I, to cross every T two times, three times, four times, just to make sure that you did it right. You know how it chokes out your life, how you feel exhausted by the need to be perfect, how you put things off because you fear that you won't do it perfectly, how you avoid new challenges. You've seen the looks from people over the years who really didn't appreciate being criticized or corrected by you all the time. You've heard your husband or your, your wife or your kids tell you that they're tired of being criticized, but you can't stop yourself. Or maybe, maybe you really don't listen to the people around you telling you that. Today, today would be a great day to listen because it's no coincidence that you're here today and that I'm speaking on this subject. God has arranged this moment just for you. 
because he wants to free you from the stranglehold that perfectionism has on you and your family. I want to talk today about the ultimate cause of perfectionism. I want to talk about the cure for perfectionism. And I want to talk about the effect of perfectionism on the family because you need to see how urgent it is that you deal with this. And to do so, uh, I want to ask you to turn back to a passage that uh, we've already looked at a few times in this series, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And you might be asking yourself, why does he keep going back to the same passage? The answer is this. It's because Christianity rise and fall, rises and falls on the ideas in this verse, but not only Christianity. Your emotional and spiritual and relational health rise and fall on these verses too. Understand them work them into your life and build your family around them and you and your family will thrive emotionally, spiritually and relationally with one another and repetition one of the keys to learning so I really want to drill these ideas in this passage uh, into you now before we look at Romans uh, 5 uh, verse 1 again let me just explain the idea behind the series for those of you who are new one more time when you hear the title uh, the family tree you're probably thinking uh, if you're new here of a genealogical family tree which kind of shows the relationship of each member of the family to his or her ancestors. That's not the kind of family tree that we're referring to in this series. We're referring to two trees in the Bible that people tend to build their lives around, each of which have very different outcomes. One is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, it's the tree uh, many of you are familiar with that Adam and Eve ate from the Garden of Eden, and this tree represents an approach to life that says, I don't need God. Uh, I can do life without God. Okay? The other tree is the cross upon which Jesus Christ died, which uh, the Bible often refers to as a tree, as odd as that may sound. So one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The other is the cross upon which Jesus Christ died. One of those trees leads to soul-crushing, relationship-killing perfectionism, while the other leads to emotional and spiritual wholeness and relational intimacy with the people that you love the most. Let's just read this morning again from the first verse of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, and of course who he's talking about here is faith in Christ, we have peace uh, with God. All right, let's start talking about the ultimate cause of perfectionism. Let's pretend for a moment that my friend Charles, who I was just telling you about, let's pretend for the moment that Charles walked into a therapist's office one day and said, my perfectionism is crippling me emotionally and spiritually, and it's destroying my relationships with my family. To my knowledge, Charles uh, never did that, by the way, but let's just imagine, let's pretend that he did. If the therapist that he goes to see isn't, the person isn't deeply conversant with biblical theology, the, therapy is, the therapist is likely, after digging into Charles' background, to tell him that, well, the cause of your perfectionism, Charles, was the trauma that you experienced as a child in first grade, and your father leaving. And the therapist wouldn't be wrong to make a connection between his perfectionism and that trauma. That would be an insightful and helpful observation as far as it goes. But the problem is, the observation doesn't go far enough. There's a bigger, more ultimate question that has to, that has to be asked before Charles can ever find the cure for his perfectionism. And here's the question, why did why did first grade Charles, why did first grade Charles jump to the conclusion in the first place that the problem was that he wasn't 
a good enough boy. Like, why, why is there this common theme among children who experience trauma that they just assume that there's something wrong with, with, with them? This is the problem with psychology that isn't conversant with or that rejects biblical truth. It just can't answer those ultimate questions. And there's a clue in this verse that does answer, that does lead to the answer to that question about why Charles would, in the first place, even think that he was the cause of his father's leaving. And it's that last phrase. We have a peace with God. Now, I want you to notice that that phrase, we have peace with God, is dependent upon the prior phrase. Uh, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith in Christ, we have peace with God. In other words, if you haven't been justified by faith, you don't have peace with God. Uh, prior Prior to this passage in Romans 5, the writer of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, has been talking about, he's been talking about something called the curse of the law. Uh, The law being the moral standard by which Israel was to live, given to them by God. Do you know what the curse of the law is? You know what it is? You know what the curse of the law is? Whether a person is born to an atheist family, a Hindu family, an Islamic family, a Buddhist family, a Jewish family, a Christian family, any kind of family, doesn't matter. No matter what kind of family a person is born to, there is buried within all of us the recognition that we owe God perfect obedience. All of us have this. Now, no question it's buried deeper in some of us than others, but it's always there within every one of us. It's instinctive. It's native. It's universal. We recognize that we owe God perfect obedience, that we should be better than we are, and we can't shake the guilt from it. That's the curse of the law. It's this native and universal guilt across the human species that recognizes we don't measure up to God's standards. Now we try, we try to vanquish this guilt in any number of ways. Some of us try to kill God. He doesn't exist, uh, we say. But, it, but that doesn't really work. And if you just listen to people, even people who are atheists, listen to how much guilt people feel. Like if you're an atheist, you might not understand that your guilt is the result of the curse of the law, but that guilt is still there. I feel guilty. I ate too much. I didn't exercise enough. I should have called my mom, but didn't. I'm too fat. I'm too thin. I should have studied harder. I shouldn't be such a couch potato. I should get a job. What is all of that? What is all of that? It's the recognition that you're not measuring up to a standard. And, even, and again, even, even though as an atheist, you might not understand that God is the standard to which you don't measure up, your guilt still affirms that there is a standard that you don't measure up to. That's the curse of the law. Now, other people, uh, instead of atheism, other people go to the other direction. They get religious. And they adopt a religion that has lots of rules. And they try to live up to all of those rules as a way of denying what their conscience knows, that they don't measure up to God's perfect standard. I'll keep these rules, and I'll prove that I am good. The problem is that the rules any religion has, even if it purports to be Christian, those rules are far easier to live up to than the perfect standard of God, which is, here's the perfect standard of God, love Him perfectly with 100% of your heart, mind, and soul, 100% of the time, and love other people with the same amount of energy that you love yourself. That's the perfect standard. 
vanquishing your guilt with religion, just like trying to vanquish your guilt with atheism, is a response to the curse of the law. Now, first grade Charles wasn't consciously aware of any of this. But the native guilt that everyone lives with was activated by his father's leaving. Charles instinctively understood that someone was guilty, and so he wrongly blamed himself. Now, to be clear, make sure you hear me on this. And don't misunderstand, it was not Charles' fault that his dad left. Let me say that again, just because I want to make sure that none of you uh, misquote me on this. It was not Charles' fault that his dad left. No way, that's, that was his dad's issue. But the reason that Charles jumped to the conclusion that it was his fault in the first place is because of the curse of the law, the native sense that we don't measure up. And so understand that his perfectionism was not caused by trauma. It was surfaced by trauma. Again, his therapist, if not biblically conversant, would make the right connection between the trauma and his perfectionism. That the trauma triggered his perfectionism initially. But his trauma wasn't the cause of his perfectionism. Trauma revealed what was already there. The ultimate cause, if you struggle with perfectionism this morning, you need to hear this. The ultimate cause of your perfectionism is that you know you should be perfect, but you aren't. That's the ultimate cause of your perfectionism. And perfectionism is your strategy to vanquish your guilt. Let me say that one more time. Perfectionism is your strategy to vanquish your guilt. Now, a good biblically informed therapist would indeed have helped Charles see the connection between his childhood trauma and his perfectionism. But over a period of time, with a great deal of compassion, a good therapist, a good biblically informed therapist would have also helped Charles understand that his perfectionism is, is a response to his native guilt. It comes from the curse of the law. Now, why is that so important to understand? Why? Because some of you might even argue, well, that seems cruel. Like, I don't go to a therapist to feel worse about myself. I go to feel better. Here's why it's so important to understand the ultimate cause of perfectionism. It's this. You can't find the cure if you don't know the cause. It's that simple. Uh, you can't find the cure for perfectionism if you don't know the cause. It's very helpful to understand the initial triggering event. But if you mistake the initial triggering event for the cause, you'll never find the cure. Never. The ultimate cause of perfectionism is this native sense that we all have, that we should be perfect, but we aren't. And so some of us adopt a strategy of perfectionism to vanquish our guilt, but it never works. What's the cure then? What is the cure? If that's the cause, what's the cure for perfectionism? Well, again, a therapist who isn't conversant with the Bible might give you any number of genuinely helpful things to curb, not cure, but curb your perfectionism. She might tell you, you need to remind yourself that perfect is the enemy of the good. He might say, you need to get off Instagram and Facebook because your perfectionism is further triggered by seeing and reading about the seemingly perfectly, uh, perfect lives of other people. 
she might remind you that even those people's lives on social media aren't as perfect as they seem. He might say to you, live and let live. She might say, keep your side of the street clean, and let others keep their side of the street clean. And as helpful as all of those pieces of advice may be at curbing your perfectionism, none of them offer a cure for perfectionism because none of them deal with the cause of perfectionism, the curse of the law, that you know you should be perfect but aren't. Notice the first half of the verse again. Notice what it says. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and of course, as I've said, it's not just faith in, it's not faith in general. It's not just faith in anything or anyone. It's faith in Christ that Paul's talking about. Says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God. You see, there's a, there's a, there is a cure for your native guilt. There is. But I want you to notice that you aren't the cure. Your perfectionism isn't the cure. You can't have peace with God. That native guilt that you don't measure up to God can never be cured. It can never be vanquished until you've trusted in Jesus Christ and His perfection in the form of His life and His death on the cross. But for you, Mr. or Mrs. Uh, perfectionist, I should say Mr. or Ms. Perfectionist, uh, you refuse to accept that. You keep trying to vanquish your guilt by your perfection instead of Christ's perfection. In other words, you're committed to justifying yourself. This, this of course, is a, it's, it's a massive denial of reality, and it mirrors Adam and Eve's sin uh, when they eat, ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were saying really the same thing you're saying. They were saying, we can make it without God. We can find meaning and purpose and peace without God. We don't need God. We don't need his authority over our lives. We want to be independent of God. And that's precisely what you, Mr. or Ms. Perfectionist, are doing and saying too. You're saying, I refuse to believe that I am incapable of being perfect. Therefore, I refuse to accept God's redemption for my imperfection, the Lord Jesus Christ. I will self-justify on my own. I will have peace. I will vanquish my guilt through my perfection. But it never comes. You never vanquish your guilt. Because you can never self-justify. You can only be justified through faith in Christ. Anybody remember your grammar back from when you were a kid? Uh, this, these words, be justified, it's a passive verb. It's not an active verb, meaning that the action, in this case justification, happens to you. You can't do it yourself. All of the stuff that that therapist said that would be helpful to you to curb your perfectionism, it's all good. It's all helpful. There's nothing wrong with anything that they're saying. The problem is that unless you find the cure for your perfectionism in Christ, all of that good advice, it's like, you know what it's like? It's like treating cancer with chicken soup. It'll taste good going down, but it won't cure you. Now, I want to point out that there are many perfectionists in the room who would say, look, I, I believe in Christ. I've trusted Christ. I know my salvation is secure. I know I'm going to heaven when I die, but I've given up on Jesus as secure. Like, I've tried and I've tried to not be a perfectionist, but Jesus isn't helping me. And the reason that it hasn't helped is that you haven't worked 
justification through faith into you. And I want to tell you how you do that. Two things. The first is repent and affirm. And you have to do this over and over and over and over again. I'm not talking about repenting and affirming for your salvation. I'm not talking about that. Because your salvation, if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, is secure. Nothing can change that. You can't lose that. I'm talking about repenting and affirming over and over and over again. To learn to trust Jesus and his perfectionism and not yours. That's what I mean. Your guilt was vanquished at the cross. I mean, your eternal destiny was secured. Again, there's no question about that. But to quote one of the Proverbs, here's what you do. Like a dog returns to his own vomit, you keep returning to your guilt. Ever heard of a person who has a limb severed who experiences ghost pain? Ever heard of that? What a perfectionist does. A perfectionist who's trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. A perfectionist keeps responding to guilt that isn't there anymore because it's been dealt with. And so you, you try again to vanquish it by your perfectionism. It's like ghost pain. You keep thinking that it's there, but it's not. Your guilt has been vanquished once and for all by Jesus Christ, and every time you feel the ghost pain of guilt that says you need to be perfect, you repent of your perfectionism and you affirm that Christ has vanquished your guilt for you. Repent and affirm. Repent and affirm over and over and over again. And you do this throughout the course of your life because all of life is repentance, you see. And then the second thing that you can do is get counseling. Get good counseling. I want you to listen to this verse. We've seen this verse before too. Uh, James is writing and he says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Healing from perfectionism does not happen alone. You've got to talk about it with someone who can help you. Someone who can help you see, yes, the initial triggering event and who can help you see your ongoing triggers and who can give you good practical advice to curb your perfectionistic tendencies, but who can and will also show you that the ultimate cause of your perfectionism is that you are under the curse of the law and that you're trying to get out from underneath it through perfectionism, not Jesus Christ. It's hard to confess your sin if you don't know why or even that you are sinning. That's why if you're a true perfectionist, one who's addicted to perfectionism, you need counseling, good biblical counseling that can get you out of it, that can help you, to free you from this. And listen to me now about this. If you're a perfectionist, if you're a true perfectionist, your family and your friends have probably been trying to tell you that your perfectionism is pathological. And that is destroying you and it's destroying them, but you don't listen to them. And frankly, what you do is you blame them, not yourself. Or maybe you don't think it's as big a deal as they say it is. Let me tell you something, it's a big deal. It's as big as they say it is, and it's even bigger. And I want to mention to you now why, I want, you, I want to mention to you why it's so imperative that you deal with this now. Here are some of the things that perfectionism is doing to the people you love. First, 
Perfectionism is creating distance between you and your spouse, your kids, your siblings, whoever it is in your family. Because no one wants to be told that they're wrong all the time and that you're right. No one wants to be forced into doing things your way. Perfectionism, you see, is an indicator that I am more concerned about me than I am about anyone else. And the people around us pick that up, and it distances us. It distances them from us. Here's the second. Perfectionism is teaching your children to deny their emotions. Because you see, you're so afraid of your own emotions because you so determined never to feel the pain of not being good, not being right. You can't honor your emotions, nor can you honor your children's emotions. So they grow up thinking that they're wrong to feel painful emotions, which leads to the third thing that perfectionism does to your family. It may make your children susceptible to addictions. It could be food addictions. It could be sex. It could be alcohol. It could be drugs. It could be any number of things. Because if a child has never been taught to deal with painful emotions like fear and sadness and frustration and, and the like, they will have to anesthetize them to deal with them. Here's the fourth thing perfectionism is doing. It, it encourages people-pleasing in your children. It encourages people-pleasing. If a child is constantly trying to live up to mom's standards or to dad's standards, living up to other people's standards will come natural to him or to her. That will be the way that they live their life. And then fifth, and perhaps this is the most important, not perhaps, in fact, it is the most important of all of these. Perfectionism drives husbands and children and siblings and parents away from Christ. Because they will mistake Christianity for control. And I want you to hear me on this. Your kids, they might even become religious. They might even become Christians. But they'll never know the peace of Christ because they will use their obedience as a way of staying away from Christ. Who they fear is as critical and, contro and as controlling as mom or dad. And so they may trust Christ. They may know Christ. But they will never know his peace because they will use obedience as a way of staying away from him. Like, don't ever get on his radar. That's how they'll view obedience. There's a cure for your perfectionism. Paul gives it here in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. That native guilt that you feel, that you know you should be perfect, you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that native guilt has been vanquished. It has been dealt with by Jesus Christ, his life and his death. Until you realize that you're no longer living under the curse of the law because you've believed in the cure of the law, the Lord Jesus Christ, your emotional and your spiritual and your relational well-being will always be choked out by your perfectionism. But there is hope. Repent and affirm that Jesus Christ has vanquished your guilt at the cross. Get some counseling. You have to work this reality, this truth, into the depths of your soul over and over and over again. And over time, you will begin to experience the peace that was bought for you at the cross. Build your life. Build your family around the cross of Jesus Christ, not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Build it around the cross of Jesus Christ.
And you and they will thrive emotionally, spiritually, and relationally. Will you bow your heads with me for prayer? Lord Jesus, it's hard for us to believe that the Bible is this practical, that it goes this deep, that it talks about these kinds of things. We want to separate the Bible and make it talk about spiritual things, but not practical things. Heavenly things, but not earthly things. Lord, the Bible speaks deeply, so deeply that it exposes everything in our lives but it also brings hope and help and cure a cure and peace to those very deep areas of our lives as well Lord Jesus Christ if there are people here this morning that needed to hear this um, if there are people listening online that needed to hear this I pray that you would drive this deep in their hearts I pray that they would not today blame everybody else around them Pray that they would not think to themselves, it's not this bad, it's not this serious. Pray that they would take it as seriously as they, as they should. But Lord, I, I pray also that they would find their hope and their cure for their perfectionism that is strangling their lives in you, Lord Jesus Christ, and what you've done for them on the cross and not their perfection. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray today. Amen.